Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's August 12th, 2015, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day in 2015 that the first of 42 bodies buried near Liverpool Street Station in London were dug up as part of the works on Crossrail, now known as the Elizabeth Line. They were thought to be victims of the Great Plague of 1665, which was a virus that affected the body, not the mind. But they turned out to be a bit of a window on history because this was the cemetery affiliated with London's mental hospital, Bethlehem, the institution more commonly known as Bedlam. And the reason that they thought that they'd found people who were plague victims was because they were thrown into what looked like a fairly hastily dug grave. And nearby they found a headstone that read 1665. But they had actually gone in search of the burial ground associated with the facility known as Bedlam. And Bedlam was actually established in 1247, uh, but it it was a priory before it was a hospital. It was uh, a religious order that was uh, dedicated to St. Mary of Bethlehem, but by 1400 it had become a medieval hospital, which then didn't imply the same idea of medical care, but it meant a sort of refuge for strangers in need. So people with mental illnesses and physical disabilities and also criminal histories would all turn up at its doors. And that partly explains why the actual inhabitants of the burial ground turned out to be a pretty diverse bunch. So some helpful volunteers made this register of 8,000 known burials on the ground. Helpful volunteers or sickos? (laughs) I'm going to stick with helpful volunteers on the off chance that they come across this episode. Ooh, there's bones. (laughs) (laughs) Mad bones. But when you look at them, only a handful of the 8,000 known burials are those of what were termed lunatics at the time. Most of them speak to the fact that Bedlam's burial ground was the first known one in the UK anyway, not associated with the church, even though it was nicknamed the New Churchyard. So it ended up accommodating not only patients at the hospital, but also lots of people were just poor people. So you had paupers, you had plague victims who possibly whose families didn't want to collect them for fear of being contaminated themselves, unwanted children, and just a variety of strangers. There are people in there who, who basically their only reason for ending up in this graveyard was that they were foreign. But it's still surprising, isn't it, in this era, that if you're poor enough not to be able to afford a decent funeral, that there isn't a religious institution that would step in and say, well, that's fine, we'll bury him as a Christian. Because there's always been that thing going through Christianity, hasn't there? You can still be saved at the end. And the fact that you're then lumped in with what then would have been seen as like, I'm in the ground with a load of nutters, you know, would be, I'd imagine that would then have to be someone who was poor, but also someone who was so anti-religious that their family couldn't countenance them having a Christian burial. Well, yes, lots of religious dissenters did choose to be buried at Bedlam. One of them was Lodewick Muggleton, who was a self-proclaimed prophet (laughs) and the founder of a religious sect known as... Muggletonianism. No. <laughs> it, was, it was basically Christianity, but with more of a starring part for Lodwick Muggleton. <laughs> right. Was something about the high and low character that the hospital came to inhabit throughout all of its history, where it was, on the one hand, this place that was originally religious and then uh, designed charitably to be 
coming to people's aid and providing a service. And then it was completely rebuilt in 1600, designed with the Tuileries Palace in Paris in mind. The location was moved and it became this sprawling, remarkable complex with these tree-lined gardens and walkways and this enormous colonnade and came to be hugely grand in a way that didn't entirely represent what was going on inside. Yeah, but also feared. I mean, people had a good sense of what was going on inside. The reason bedlam is still a byword is because as early as Shakespeare's writing, there are references to, like, the fool being someone who you'd find in bedlam and people with mental illness being kept in a way which, I mean, then people didn't necessarily have any ethical problem with, but essentially as prisoners, and that wasn't something that you'd want to desire for yourself. I think we mustn't gloss over this. The intentions of the people, you know, the board of Bedlam may well have thought they were doing the right thing. The clear byproduct of what they created was abuse on an industrial scale of people with what now we would think of as things like dementia and epilepsy and and learning difficulties. So the earliest reference I could find to a formal inspection of the facilities at Bedlam was in 1598, when it was under the control of the governors of Bridewell, which was a house of correction, like an early form of a workhouse. And by this point, it was well established as an asylum. They found it was, quote, so loathsomely, filthily kept, not fit for any man to come into the house, which is unsurprising because an open drain ran through it and it was regularly flooded with sewage. The inmates were locked and sometimes chained inside cells that were bedded with straw-like barns. And there were reports of them regularly hurling the contents of their piss pots at passers-by, unsurprisingly because no care was given to their hygiene or to provide any form of recreation for them whatsoever. They were basically, as you say, locked up like prisoners. And even in this era, there was a waiting list to get in. You know, that goes to show how completely absent any facilities were at all for dealing with people that had any form of mental illness. And in the early days, there weren't that many patients, which is why there was a waiting list. There were like 20 or 30 of them. And yet you get these references in literature, which shows you the stigma of the diseases and illnesses that they had. Like it it had resonance way beyond the walls of Bethlehem Hospital. Yeah, you really weren't going to this place to be treated, but to be isolated and experimented on, frankly. You know, patients were subjected to these things that were called treatments, but they included such things as rotating therapy, where you were seated in a chair suspended from the ceiling and spun up to about 100 rotations per minute. And this was, as you'd expect, to induce vomiting. And that was a popular purgative cure for most ailments at the time, because this was in an era when many physicians believed that mental illness existed in the body and not in the mind and could therefore be exercised through physical activity. And that's why they subjected people to things like this. And actually, in Incidentally, the resulting vertigo that these patients uh, experienced contributed a huge body to research in contemporary vertigo patients. So there was a positive outcome for our understanding of one ailment, at least. It was just done in this really hideous way. Well, we also get trepanning, as it is now, from Bedlam, because they used to drill a hole in people's heads to let the devil out. Um, that is not medically practiced these days in, in the UK. Um, but a version of it is thanks to the research that they did, because you still do occasionally in surgery drill into people's skulls to help with, you know, easing pressure. I mean, it was also just pure. 
pure lack of funding and resources, which gave rise to the meaning of the word bedlam that we know today. By the 1600s, the hospital had just descended into this period of mismanagement and chaos. And as the only mental health facility in Britain up to that time, it was really dependent on government funding. And even so, there wasn't enough of it coming to them. And so there was this radical reimagining of what it was and what it should be. And that's part of why it was rebuilt in this very grandiose way. Yeah, it was nicknamed the Palace for Lunatics, but it qu- that quickly began to crumble as well. And it's from, actually from this era, you know, I think we're all familiar with the image of parties of paying gawkers touring the asylum. And I think we think of it as symbolic of the Victorian freak show and how insensitive people were, etc. But it actually dates from an earlier period. They curtailed these visits in the 1770s, not out of compassion to the inmates, but because it was just getting too difficult to control all these people and it was getting overcrowded, etc. But this era of visits took place not in the original building, Building that was so run down and it was basically a hovel with a sewer through it but it took place in this sort of crumbling palace which just made it all the more sinister really mm. I mean you could pay in the earlier days if you wanted to go in as we learned from our episode on the crown jewels at this time if you paid the right person you could basically pay to look at anything but in the late 1600s and the 1700s is when there was a, a, basically a formal system you paid your admission and you went in and looked around and so while this period of public visitation only lasted for about 100 years it's really had an oversight impact on our imagination of Bedlam you know the mm. lurid accounts they've left behind and obviously they horrify us as modern readers you know, people standing around pointing at oh look at what the lunatics are doing but at the time the mentally ill were widely seen as lacking human feeling or reason you know they were seen as having become almost animalistic so pointing and laughing at them it was thought wouldn't hurt them I mean, there are elements of reality TV that are basically still gawping at people with mental illnesses, aren't they? Right. You know, and talent shows. And this was how you had to do it then. If you wanted to see someone who was troubled, you had to go and pay your price to to go and have a look at them. And by the middle of the 19th century, at least, you know, when Dickens, for example, published his famous essay, A Curious Dance Around a Curious Tree, there was obviously a sense that the chattering classes, at least, were thinking, these are people under here. And not so much that actually you should be that sympathetic to where they've come from, but that there was an imperative, a moral imperative on on rich people, basically, not to just pay and gawp at them, but to try and reform the institution so it could reform them morally. Yeah, and at one point in the 1750s, tens of thousands of people visited to the point that it was the second tourist attraction in London after St Paul's Cathedral. Wow. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't even the only place like this you could pay to go around either. You could also pay to visit the Foundling Hospital and look at all the unwanted children, mm. or the Maudlin Hospital for Penitent Prostitutes. And yet, M&M's World was still the bottom attraction in London. <laughs> <laughs> next time. But at the peak of its influence, it was able to attract 20,000 people to a rally in Madison Square Garden. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.